Robotarium with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Welcome to this episode of the RoboHub podcast. I'm Audro Nash, and this is an interview that I did with Professor Magnus Eigerstadt from the Georgia Institute of Technology. In the interview, Professor Eigerstadt talks about the Robotarium, a 725-square-foot lab at the Georgia Institute of Technology that houses nearly 100 rolling and flying robots. The exciting thing about this lab is that it can be used by anyone Researchers from anywhere in the world can write their own programs, upload them to the Robotarium, and then watch the machines carry out their commands. In this interview, Professor Eigerstadt speaks about the kinds of robots used in the Robotarium, the design decisions, the differences between doing research in simulation and on hardware, and about lessons learned and the challenges of building the Robotarium. Hi, welcome to RoboHub Podcast. Hello. Would you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm uh, Magnus Eggerstedt. I am a swarm robotics professor at Georgia Tech, where I also run the Institute for Robotics and Intelligent Machines. Mm -hmm. So what motivates your interest in swarms? Ultimately, I am really fascinated, and I've always been, by large collections of birds or fish that are able to form these beautiful shapes with very simple rules. And I, I've always been fascinated by that and wanted to kind of see if I could understand the mathematical underpinnings of how do you get ill-informed individuals to come together and solve complicated tasks in a collaborative manner. Mm-hmm. And so with swarm research, just um, to provide some context, what are some limitations currently in robotics? Well, so the type of limitations you find when you swarm robotics are typically having to do with what do the individual robots know. Uh, they have limited sensing capabilities. You can't saturate the channels with communication because then all of a sudden you all of a sudden saturate all the you sucked up all the bandwidth. So you have limitations on what you can talk about, you limitations about what the robots see. You typically, if you're going to deploy, deploy large teams of robots, you can't build super expensive, super fancy robots because then all of a sudden you've spent millions and millions of dollars building a large team. So simple hardware, simple sensors, not very much information. Those are the types of limitations you're up against. Mm-hmm. So now we were speaking just before this, and you were telling me about some of the limitations in swarm research, making it very difficult for different universities to get involved. Would you start? Would you tell me a bit about that? So anyone that works with robots knows that getting a robot to do something is a pain. Now let's multiply that by a hundred. Right? So actually. You now want 100 robots to do something. That is hard. And not only is it hard because there's always one robot that's misbehaving, it also costs a lot of resources. So people, equipment, money to run and maintain and develop a world-class swarm robotics lab. So the biggest limitation 
typically is access to sharp world-class research facilities. And you see this in the research universe where there are only a handful of labs that truly matter in swarm robotics. And it's not because those labs have the best ideas, it's because those labs have the most resources. Mm -hmm. Now tell me about your solution to this. Well, so the solution is simple once you realize that this is a problem, which is, well, let other people use our lab. Uh, so we uh, at Georgia Tech developed something that we call the Robotarium. And the idea was that this was a kind of highly curated, visible, remotely accessible swarm robotics lab where people upload code, run experiments on our robots, get the data and the video feedback, and that will allow people to test their ideas. And whoever has the best idea should be able to publish that with real robots, regardless of whether or not they can afford 100 robots themselves. Mm -hmm. So how did it get its name? Ah, so we thought first that we were going to build a, what we called an aquarium for robots. So we called it the Roboquarium. And then realized that ah, there's no water. This is a terrarium for robots. So robo, the Robotarium was really some version of a robotic terrarium. Mm -hmm. That's where the name came from. And in fact, the way we built it was at Georgia Tech, we have these massive windows into the Robotarium because we still wanted it to feel like a terrarium. And because users upload code any time of the day and run experiments, every morning my students have to wipe nose prints from the glass because uh -huh. the robots wake up in the middle of the night and start doing stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. So would you describe it to me? So what it is, is basically a, it looks like a, an ice hockey rink uh, with a hundred small uh, wheel-based differential drive ground robots roaming around on this uh, ice hockey rink. And then on top of that, we have 15 uh, small quadcopters that you oh, can wow. use and fly over it. I should point out though that the, the quadcopters are not completely program. automatic, so you can program them but you have to get permission from us to actually fly uh -huh. it, and there has to be a grad student present to make sure that you don't gotcha. break stuff. Uh, first, so it's, it's a big hockey rink kind of thing, and you have the 100 robots on it. What are the 100 robots like? Well, describe each one. You said differential drive. Yeah, so, so they're, they're wheeled. Yeah, they're wheeled, differential drive. And they're tiny, too. And they're tiny. Well, they're sticking with the metaphor. They're slightly smaller than a hockey puck. Yes. Uh, and one of the challenges is this is on 24-7, which means we also have along the edge of the Robotarium uh, charging strips. Mm -hmm. So the robots basically hang out at the edge of the, of the arena most of the time, mm -hmm. charging up the batteries, ready to go when a user runs an experiment. Gotcha. Okay, do they have, um, how do you localize where they are? So we use uh, motion captioning systems. So we have a Vicon system for doing indoor GPS and localization. And they have infrared sensors on it. If you want fancier sensing modalities, we hallucinate this by using the, the Vicon system. So basically, mm. we tell the robots what they, what they would have sensed had they had a camera, for instance. Uh, and this was a design choice we made because what we really wanted to push with the Robotarium were distributed control algorithms. So looking at the, the motion aspect of how should the robots be moving mm -hmm. as opposed to maybe pushing the sensing aspect. Okay. All right, so users can log on to this, upload their code for um, it to run, and then the robots enact 
whatever it is they program. And this is a way of testing ideas. Yeah. So the, the design flow is you go to robotarium.org mm -hmm. and you register as a user. Uh, and then you get access to code snippets. So example code, we have a Robotarium simulator where you can simulate things first and then you literally just change the flag uh, mm -hmm. and then it can run. run. Then it can run. What happens is when you submit an actual experiment, experiment, you get placed in a queue and when it's your turn, it just runs. Mm -hmm. And then you get the data and the video feedback. And what you do is you specify things like how many robots do you need? What kind of initial conditions? What mm -hmm. level of abstraction do you want to engage with them? So some people care deeply about controlling the individual wheels. Ah. Some people don't care. They want to just give okay. waypoints. Some people are interested in very sparse communication uh, Got you. networks. Some people don't care about that. So you can basically specify the type of experiment you want. We also have a projector that projects down environments. So mm. you can do, we've said, seen people do traffic or urban environments or mm -hmm. cornrows. If you, yeah, just, whatever you like. Yeah. Very cool. Yes. So now it seems pretty flexible. What, so designing it for users, um, like with the API, can you talk a bit about that? Because so if you want people to access the wheels and if you want to abstract things quite high, so you're just controlling the individuals, maybe their movement, Tell them go here, this kind of thing. Talk a bit about designing such a, I don't know, the system that has such a wide level of... Yeah, uh, before I even answer that question, one of the things that's fascinating and challenging about building a research instrument as opposed to a ah, teaching yes. instrument is it has to be flexible. Yes. If I can imagine all the things that users are going to do, then it's not a particularly flexible instrument. Mm -hmm. right? So we had to build something that allowed people to ask different types of questions of the system and upload even bad code, right? Because if I have an idea and it doesn't work out, that's worth knowing. So mm -hmm. we had to allow for crappy experiments to run. Um, yeah. So we, we, we designed something that we called an experiment description language where we basically give a handful of options of the type of dynamics each robot should have. Should they be differential drive, non-holonomic systems, or should there be you know, points that you can move around or points on a chessboard? Basically, you have... Mm -hmm. a and non-holonomic? So this means uh, like a car, it can't move sideways. Yep. So you can actually engage with a... So with the robots, and if you're interested in non-holonomic motion planning, mm -hmm. you need to be able to control things like translational and angular velocities. Uh, so you specify a whole slew of things, and you do this on the website. Uh, and then, so you have your code, and you also have the corresponding experiment description language. And then those two together constitute the, the, the experiment. experiment. Gotcha. Uh would you tell me a bit more about hallucinating different sensors? Yeah, so one of the things that I am not particularly interested in is spending all my time supporting a gazillion different hardware configurations. Mm -hmm. And we made a design choice that the things that we're really going to support are different types of distributed mobility algorithms. That's really what we're, what we're about in the Robotarium. And for that reason we decided that if you want point clouds, for instance, with a laser scanner, or you want uh, monocular vision, then we're actually not going to support that in hardware. What we're going to do is we're going to build uh, basically simulated sensors. Mm -hmm. So with the motion captioning system, uh, 
We have a central computer that computes. What do we think? The state of everything. Yeah. And what, what would this robot see, roughly, if mm -hmm. this robot had a camera? And mm -hmm. then we, we transfer that to the, to the individual robots. And I'm going to be completely honest. That part isn't always super high fidelity reliable. and reliable. But it's, and it turns out that the users we are getting are typically the types. They're asking the types of questions that have to do with mobility. Yeah. What we did not expect, though, is we have a lot of users that are not roboticists. We've had oh. quite a few biologists that are interested in social insects and behaviors. A couple of weeks ago, we had a really cool experiment where the robots seemed like they were slamming into each other. They just started driving towards each other in a rather aggressive manner. And I contacted the, the researcher from Arizona State, and this was a particular algorithm for doing queen selection after a an ant colony had collapsed and you needed oh, wow. to select new queens by basically fighting it out. So these were robots fighting with each other to decide who was who's going to be the next queen. That's so funny. It is funny. Now, um, so what's the advantage to doing it in hardware like this as opposed to, you mentioned you have the simulation, yeah. you can add these, hallucinate these sensors. What's the advantage to using hardware as opposed to just pure simulation? Well, I mean, fundamentally, it's threefold. One is shit happens on real systems that don't happen in simulation. And yes. there is no way of faithfully s simulating yet all the complexities that come with all the, different, know, all the different contacts, friction, saturated uh -huh. communication channels. Uh -huh. So you really need to, I, I firmly believe, if you're a roboticist, you got to put it on a robot. And there is no way around it. Another reason why I personally like hardware is there's something so much more exciting about seeing it happening in the real world than, than on uh, just this computer screen. Uh -huh. And I had a third reason, which is very selfish, which is I wanted to build a... This is not a lab that just looks like a normal lab. It's a highly theatrical <laughs> experience. Someone described it as a as an Apple store, because oh, yeah. it's really shiny. We have all these design elements in it. And I wanted to use this also as a place for getting kids excited to come to campus at Georgia Tech and just go, oh my God, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Hmm. Now I'm going to go to Georgia Tech and study robotics. Gotcha. Yeah. Nice. Grab them at a young age. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's In fact, I view it as the gateway drug into <laughs> STEM research. Most productive gateway yeah, yeah. drug. Um, so now um, with all with the hardware, tell me a bit about the maintenance. Yeah, so there are a few aspects of... So you mentioned there's charging on the edge. Yeah, so there are a few aspects of running this kind of lab that are, makes, it, makes it hard to maintain. Yes. Uh, one has to do with the fact that it's on 24-7. Mm -hmm. So how, we, we got to build things that are as robust as possible, but they will break. So they also have to be as cheap as possible. Mm -hmm. And these are conflicting objectives. Right? So we iterated a, a, along the design quite a bit and we have now something we call the grit spots because my lab is called the grits lab. And huh. they're, they're fairly cheap. They cost around a hundred bucks to build each, each robot. Most of the time they're fine, but if they break, it's not the end of the world. Uh, but the other thing that comes with that is people upload code that does all sorts of strange things, including colliding and in the beginning, we just had robots breaking mm -hmm. because they would slam into each other with 
high velocities. Uh, you don't do any limitations, like um, a higher level thing that says they can't hit each other at this velocity? Or? Well, so what we, do, what we did initially is we didn't want that because we wanted people to be allowed to test whatever they wanted. But that seemed like a stupid idea because they were breaking our things. So then we slapped collision avoidance type behaviors around it. But the problem with collision avoidance is once you pack the robots densely together, then collision avoidance will be too conservative. Is all the robots do. So yes. it's exactly too conservative. So, so you can't do anything. Yeah. So we, we ended up going with uh, something called barrier certificates that basically oh. kick in when catastrophic events are about to happen and they prevent that. So the robots can actually touch, they just can't slam into each other head on with. Mm-hmm. Yes. High velocities. Gotcha. And this has become quite, I think, exciting. In fact, the reason the barrier certificates work is because the robots are collaborating, mm-hmm. meaning they have the same type of... Can talk a bit about barrier certificates? Ah, so barrier... Yeah, so barrier certificates are... It's a very great... It's a great idea. It's a really, really shiny too. idea. That, and, and at the core of it is you define constraints. Instead of defining costs where you have a cost for collisions. You basically define constraints that kick in when catastrophic events are about to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as long as you're inside the set of safe states, meaning bad things are not happening, you can do whatever you want. But mm-hmm. when you get up on the edge... Keeps you in the set, the good set. You're pushed back in the good set. Uh, so it only becomes active when... Catastrophic. Catastrophic things bad things. Yeah. Back to talking about the maintenance of yeah. them over time. I mean, so I have specific questions like what what breaks first, and um, can you do tests? Like, is are you measuring kind of the long term effect of running robots for like long term autonomy kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, so initially, the thing that broke first was always the, the, wheels. the wheels. Yeah, and actually, we're what still specifically in the wheels. So things would just fall off, and oh, yeah. they would also get stuck in each other, and uh, huh. because. So we had to start pulling in the wheels. Uh, it still seems to be that the, the wheels is what breaks first. Uh, but it's nice and cheap. Probably, but they're nice and days. cheap. Uh, the, the, other th- <laughs> the other thing that uh, broke was we designed this beautiful arena and then uh, all of a sudden it started buckling because the, we had the charge. What started buckling? The, the actual the floor of the arena because we oh, had yeah. the, the wireless chargers underneath it and we hadn't tested what happens when you have these wireless chargers on for hours and hours and days and days. And mm-hmm. so now what we did is we actually moved the charging stations up from under and put it on the side. Ah. So now the robots, they used to have the charging pads underneath them. Now they have them on the side Just bump into the wall and they ball bump into the wall. Gotcha. Uh, the other thing that breaks every now and then is the, basically the network. So mm, yeah, this is irritating and there's nothing we can do about that. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Now, um, in the we talked a little bit before. Tell me about Build It and They Will Come and that idea. Yeah. So uh, in the words of Kevin Costner in the field of dreams, if you build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. That turned out to be absolutely wrong when it came to Robotarium. We built it and no one showed up. So initially I had to beg my friends and colleagues to submit code. And grudgingly they did it. Uh, I mean, in the beginning it was like pulling teeth. And it took a while. We, we went live with a scaled-down version of the Robotarium, basically a tabletop version of it mm. in early 2016. And then uh, we had a small but faithful group of users 
let's say we probably had around 50 research groups that were, were using it over and over again. And then we launched the big Robotarium in August uh, 2017. Mm-hmm. And around that time, something happened where enough people had heard about it that all of a sudden we now have 20 to 30 users or research groups every week uploading code. Mm-hmm. We've had almost 500 research groups in total. We've had every wow. continent except Antarctica represented <laughs> on the Robotarium. So listeners out there, if you happen to be a researcher uh, in Antarctica, please upload code on the Robotarium so I can brag and say we have every continent. <laughs> Shameless. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so what have been some major challenges in getting this far with it? Or in designing it, getting it how it is? Challenge one was actually a... We're literally giving people remote access to physical things on the Georgia Tech campus. And Georgia Tech IT initially was not really excited about this idea. So we had to spend a lot of time convincing them that, you know, this is fine. Uh, the other challenge that, that I'm facing right now is I want this to cost the low, low price of free. I really don't want to charge people for it. And I still have... Uh, supply and demand, though. Yeah. And I still have funding up to, let's say, two, three years out. But... A challenge that I'm facing now is how do I make this self-sustained in the long run, yet allow people to use it for free? Uh, and one thing that we've seen is actually I have companies using the Robotarium. And oh, yeah. I'm going to start charging. If you're a pro- for-profit, you're going to have to pay to use the Robotarium. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, so if you were to do it again, what changes would you make? Like with what you know now. Yeah, I mean, like all hardware design, it's a painful, iterative slog to get to the (laughs) the right design. And I still don't think we're there. We're still redesigning the robots. Uh, I mean, the first thing I would change is I would shortcut this iterative design and (laughs) show up where we are now. The other thing that I would have done, which we didn't do initially, is, and this anyone that starts companies knows that you got to find what the customer actually wants as opposed to imagining what it is that you want. So the first thing we did is we thought that everyone who uses this is going to be like us. Mm. So they're going to use ROS and they're going to think of the world in a certain way. And then we immediately, all these theoretical roboticists or biologists for that matter, they don't like to use ROS. They use MATLAB. So it turned out that the initial wave of users, they didn't want to use ROS. They wanted to use MATLAB. So we had to quickly step back and redesign our uh, script. So the script you upload actually looks now like a MATLAB script. And now we have a Python version of it. But initially, we spent time building things that at least our initial users didn't want. Hmm. Uh, The other thing that we probably, what I would have done differently is I would have already from the get-go... How would you have found out what they want before? So well, like if you could redo it and look for more what they want, would you have asked them? Would you? Have... you, you yeah, and, and we, we tried to do that. The problem with all of this is you don't know that you need the Robotarium until you realize that, oh my God, this is awesome and I need it. <laughs> uh, but I think one thing that I would have spent some time on initially is organize maybe some kind of workshops or something where I invited people to Georgia Tech and had them basically discuss if this thing existed, what would the features be or what kind of questions would I have asked of it? Gotcha. You could even ask them, like, what software do you use? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you don't have to tell them what it's for or anything. Yeah. The other thing I would have done right from the get-go, and this is this is one of the 
the, the, the joys, but also the problems with academic research is we're trying to do world-class research on with, with the world's most transient workforce, right? I mean, students are uh. supposed to show up and then they're supposed to leave. And what I now have is a research engineer in charge of the Robotarium. In the beginning, I didn't have that. Uh. And that was also a mistake because... The person who built it first, he graduated and went to Apple. And then I had a new person that had to step in and he graduated and went to Tesla. And now, <laughs> now I actually have a person that is hired to be nothing but the Robotarium guy. But that, uh, that I should have done right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Let's see. And then uh, lastly, how can people start using this themselves if they're interested? Well, you go to robotarium.org and... We have a lot of uh, example code now there, and we have some videos explaining how to use it. Uh, so you go check it out. You download the, the simulator, and you start, and you start running. And uh, it is, from my point of view, so it, it's almost magic. So you're standing there next to the robotarium, and all of a sudden the robots start moving, and you have no idea what they're doing. And I sometimes try to, you know, what the hell are what are they up to? And sometimes it's clear and sometimes it's not. But the other thing is I've talked to users and they also find it kind of charming and magic where they just upload code and all of a sudden they get the link to a Dropbox where the video feed is of their experiment actually happening in real world or real life. And that's, uh, that's powerful stuff. Thank you. Thank you. And that's the end of today's episode. As always, you can find out more about the Robotarium and access all of our past episodes at robohub.org podcast. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Robotarium with Robohub the podcast for news and views on robotics.